This morning, I want to share a few thoughts with you on the the theme of being totally dependent on God. You know, it's one thing to become a Christian. Do you remember those days when you got excited? Becoming a Christian was an exciting experience. But another thing, to maintain a real spiritual relationship with God. You know, as we get older, it becomes easy to follow a set pattern of living the Christian life, but lose the real substance of it. Sometimes we get so preoccupied with external rather than internal relational issues which characterize the Christian life. In attempt to demonstrate this this morning, I want to focus on the events as recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 4, as Helen read to us earlier. And I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open as I would be reading again some of the verses, and you might like to follow them as we go through them. The story begins with Israel in combat with the Philistines. Now, if you know your Old Testament stories, you will know that the Philistines were a ferocious nation that lived on the southwest border of Israel. Whenever they are mentioned in the Old Testament, they always seem to be fighting. You remember the story about David and Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine. But here in chapter 4 we read, Israel went into battle yet again with the Philistines and they lost. They were defeated. And they began to ask the question, where is God? Why has God deserted us? We have lost 4,000 men and we've returned with our tail between our legs, as they say. This shouldn't be so. We've got God on our side. Why is this happening? And of course, some bright spark comes up with the idea. And he says, maybe we need to do something to help us. So in verse 4, we read, He says, let's get the Ark of the Covenant. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant and take it with us into battle. Now, I'll give you a little history of the Ark of the Covenant. Why did this person come up with this suggestion? If we got the Ark of the Covenant and took it into battle with us, we're bound to win. That's going to be, you know, that's going to be uh, the, the winning thing behind, behind this, all these uh, battles that we're having. A bit of the Ark of the Covenant, a little bit of history on it. It was a most important piece of furniture that God had told Moses to make. And if you have time this evening or this afternoon, after you've had your lunch, read Exodus chapter 25, and it'll give you an account, or it'll tell you, give you a full description of what the Ark of the Covenant was like. It was made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with pure gold inside and out. But the important thing about the Ark of the Covenant 
the most important thing is God said to Moses, I will meet you there. I will meet you and the Ark of the Covenant. I will meet you at the mercy seat. At the top of the Ark of the Covenant was a seat or a golden top. And God said to Moses, it is there that I will meet you. This was the whole, most holiest place, place, holy of holies, and God was there. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's present, presence symbolically. Now, if you know the history of the Israelites and all that they had been through, you will know that the Ark of the Covenant played a very significant part in the victorious encounters of the Israelite people. God had always instructed his people to take the Ark into battle, into conflict. And every time they'd taken the Ark into conflict, God had intervened and they were victorious. So they began to think back, well, hang on a minute, We've lost this battle. God is not with us. But we know, we remember in the past, when we took the Ark of the Covenant in to battle with us, we always won. So let's go and get the Ark of the Covenant. We'll take it into battle next time. And wow, we're going to win. win. We're going to win against the Philistines again. If you remember the story of Joshua... He took over for Moses to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And you remember the story about when they tried to cross uh, over the river, the priest took the Ark of the Covenant, lifted it, stood in the river, and it parted, just like the Red Sea. And the Israelites were allowed to, to walk through. The enemies were behind, they were chasing them, but there... God opened the river so that they could get through. The Ark of the Covenant was used. It was symbolic. The Ark played a vital role when God gave them the victory. In Joshua 6, we read about the walls of Jericho. What did God tell the people to do? March round the city. How many times? Seven times with the Ark of the Covenant. The priest went ahead, and after so many days, they gave a shout, and what happened? The walls came down and down. And again, the Israelites were victorious. So they think, oh, great, we'll go and get the Ark of the Covenant. So they did. And what happened? The results were even more horrific than it was before. Before they took the ark into battle, they had only lost 4,000 men. Now they went and they got the ark. The results, 30,000 died. And not only did 30,000 men die, the, the priests, Eli's son, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And wow, the ark was captured. The ark, the most Precious, holy, sacred furniture or uh, symbolic of God's presence was captured by the Philistines. Can you imagine how the Israelites felt? 
You know, in the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets of stone. If you remember the, when Moses uh, came down from the mountain, he had the tablets of stone on which was written the Ten Commandments. That was very precious to the Israelite. They were God's chosen people. And in, in, in the Ark were the tablets of stone, the commandments. And now it was captured. And they were even more confused. But why? The ark has always got us out of trouble before. It's always uh, made us victorious. What has happened? As we go on and we read the rest of the story, the second part of the reading that Helen read for us, we see that even more tragic events happened. When Eli heard that the ark had been uh, captured, he fell off his chair and he died. And this daughter-in-law, who was pregnant, went into premature labor, and she bore a son. It was an awful time for the family, for Eli's family. But she named the son Ichabod, which meant, the scriptures tell us, the glory of the Lord has departed, departed from Israel. This is a very tragic story. But you know, it has as its source a very simple issue. If we go back to Joshua and we read Joshua 3 verse 5, when God used the Ark of the Covenant as a symbol of his presence to help his people, it said, consecrate yourself to God and he will give you the victory. This was God's story. And things will not be accomplished unless God is involved. In Joshua 6, chapter 2, verse 2, sorry, God said to the people, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. God gave them the victory. You see, the ark was only a symbol of God's presence. It wasn't the ark that did the work. It was God. And what the Israelites had done is that they had detached God from the object. They had detached God from the ark. It wasn't the ark that had done, that had made them victorious. It was God. And that's a mistake that Christians make, you and I, we make time and time again. You see, we learn a pattern and we decide we're going to imitate that. They hadn't really learned the principle behind the victories they'd had in the past. See, the principle wasn't the ark. It was just a symbol. God was the one that did, did the work. And it is easier to reproduce a pattern than it is to learn and apply a principle that can be applied to lots of situations. Sometimes we reduce the Christian life to just rituals and procedures that do not require total commitment or dependency, total dependency on God. Procedures that are not driven by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Originality that God offers. You know, we look for help in all the wrong places and sometimes we ignore the source. 
Once we see a pattern that works, we tend to copy it and we forget who is behind it all. And then we wonder why it doesn't work. We attempt it and then God writes across our plans, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed because we are looking to objects and we're looking to uh, patterns and we're looking to past experiences and we're not looking to the one who is, uh, is our complete and utter sufficiency. You know, sometimes, you know, you, somebody might say, oh, well, actually, you know, there's a church down the road and we've got thousands of people going there. You know, let's go down and see why it is drawing in such a crowd. So you send a couple of spies down from your church and they, and they attend and they, they think, and they come back with the news. Well, actually, the reason why they're having so many people in church is because they've ditched their organists, they've ditched their hymn books, they've got all these modern technology with all the songs on the screen, they've got a band at the front, they've got you know, all the musical instruments you could think of, and that's working, and that's great. You know, as Christians, what do we do? Actually, that's work. That's a good idea. So we copy it. So we ditch our organists, get rid of, burn all our songbooks, and we start doing that. And nothing happens. And we think, well, why? It's happening down the road. Why isn't it happening here? But you see, it is God who does the work, not following a pattern, not seeing what anyone else is doing. You know, what is exciting and what is a, a, a spiritual experience for somebody may not be, you know, the, the, what is for us. God is, God is unique. And as, as we are made in his image, we are unique as well. You know, about two years ago, I had to have another uh, open heart surgery. And uh, this time they decided to send me to London Chess Hospital uh, for the procedure. And I remember four weeks and days, I was jumping up and down because I thought, I don't want to go to London Chess Hospital. I've never been there. I want to go to Papworth. I've been there for years and years and years, and I've been helped there. I know the doctors there. I know everybody there. I know the building. I feel safe there. I feel that if, if they're going to, to uh, poke around at my heart, so to speak, I want it to be in Papworth. And I was really getting myself all stressed up, confused, and the Lord had written across there, Ichabod, because it wasn't Papworth who had done the work in my life. It was God. All he was doing was sending me to another venue. But because I had it in my mind that it was Papworth Hospital that had helped me, and not God working through them. See, we rely on our past experiences what we've known in the past, how God has helped us in the past. But God is not like that. You know, we can't put God in a box. He's, he's wilder than that. He's untamable. 
we read from Colossians. He's the image of the invisible God. He's greater than that. He's more powerful. He has resources that we, can, we can't imagine. But we tend to put him in a box because we're familiar with a certain experience. We're familiar with a certain pattern. We're familiar with a certain procedure. And because God has worked in that before, we think he's going to work in it again. And we lose sight of who he is. And it is him who's behind it all. And then we go to the activity or the procedure or the pattern or the experience we had before. We rely on that because we think that is where our security is. So we have to be careful as Christians that we do not you know, try to imitate what has gone on in the past and what others is doing. A, f- a few uh, months ago, I read a book written by Mahesh Chavda. I don't know if any of you have come across him. He has a wonderful ministry of fasting. He's one of the few people I know can fast for a week. But that is his gift. And I was reading this book, and it was really exciting. It says, he went to Africa, he fasted for a week before one of his evangelistic crusade. And on the last night, he got up and preached. Several people came up to him who were ill. He was touching them and healing them. One by one, they were being healed. And I thought, good, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start fasting. I want to be able to heal people like that. So I, the first day I started off, I thought, and by six o'clock, I could have passed out. I couldn't do it. See, it was not for me. That was his blessing, his experience. It was not, it just did not suit my meta, metabolism, you know. It just didn't work with me. But it sounded great. Oh, yes, if I fast for a week and I go and lay hands on people, wow, they'll be, they'll be saved. But, you know, all of us are different. And all our gifts are different. All our experiences are different. We cannot just put God in a box and say, well, this is all you can do, Lord, so I'll follow that pattern. God is different. We have to rely totally on him for all that we need. And his resources are limitless. And if we ask, he will give us what we need. But we have to keep our eyes on him, not on the people around us, not on Simon, not on Heather, not on Claire, not on this building, not on the music group, not what they're doing. You know, sometimes I, I, I listen to all these wonderful songs written by Stuart Townend and, uh, and Chris Tomling, and I say, I can write a song like that. It's only from the Bible. And I can sit there for hours and nothing happens. And I think, well, how can, they, you know, I can write a song. No, but that's not the way God wants to bless me. Don't, we don't look at what others are doing, how God is blessing them, how God is using them, how God is anointing them, and expect us, ex- expect to copy it. God just writes across it, Ichabod means the glory of the Lord has gone. See, the Ark of the Covenant was just a symbol of God's presence. But what, what did they say? If we read again, uh, in verse 4, it says, 
Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistine? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and it may save us from the hands of the enemies. See, they were saying it was going to save us, but it wasn't the ark. It was God. And if you read the passage through, you read the whole chapter, they kept saying it. They keep referring to it and us, it and us, but never did they mention God. You see, sometimes we lose sight you know, of what is happening. The important thing is that we spend time with God. It doesn't matter how God does it. You know, but the important thing is God does it. There was nothing wrong in the Israelites wishing to carry the ark, but they were depending on the ark, not God. You know, God is unpredictable, unpredictable. We see this in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, where Matthew records 10 distinctive miracles that Jesus performed. The first miracle, Jesus healed a leper. How did Jesus heal the leper? Jesus touched him. If you have some time this afternoon again, you'll be doing a lot of reading. Read again Matthew chapter 8 and 9. How did Jesus heal the leper? He went up to him and touched him. And the leper was healed. And have you noticed how no one touched lepers except Jesus? Jesus was the only person who touched lepers. But Jesus is not predictable. He doesn't do the same thing again and again and again. If we try to put him in a box... It won't work. You know, he, he, he is too great for that. But the first miracle, Jesus touched. The second miracle, it tells us the story about the sick man with four crazy friends. It's good to have crazy friends, but that's a message for another time. Four crazy friends that took this, uh, this paralytic man to Jesus. What did Jesus do? Jesus didn't touch him. He said to him, take up your bed and walk. Get up and walk. Jesus spoke to him. Can you imagine in our society today what would happen? You know, because we're thinking, oh, it's the activity that works and not the person behind it. Can you imagine if these two people met up and had a discussion and the leper said to, to, to the paralytic man, wow, Jesus healed you as well. He healed me. So how, how did you feel when he touched you? Did you feel all warm and, and you know, fuzzy inside? Did you feel the power flow through you when he touched you? And the paralytic man said, he didn't touch me. Well, how did he heal you then? He spoke to me. He didn't speak to me. And you can imagine it, can't you? The people who were touched, the man who was touched, he would go and form his own church. And that would be the touchy church, you know, because that's how Jesus heals, by touching. So they'd be singing songs like, you know, he touched me and, 
it, it, it would just be centered around the fact that Jesus touched to heal. And the one who actually Jesus spoke to, he would go and form another church called, I don't know, maybe the, the speaking church, because that's how God healed him. He spoke to him. And then we, we, we read further into, the, into chapter to eight and nine. And then we find out, wow, God healed the blind man. And how did he heal the blind man? He didn't touch him. What did he do? He spat in his eye. And you think, wow. So he joins the other two and he starts talking. He says, wow, Jesus healed me. Spat in my eyes. How did it feel when Jesus spat in your eye? And the other two say, he didn't spit in my eye. Well, how did he heal you then? You've got, he's got to spit in your eye for, for, for you to be healed. That's how he healed me. And you know, we can go on like that because we tend to copy or we tend to imitate or we tend to, to look at the experience that that person is having and we think that should apply to us. But God is unpredictable. Jesus was unpredictable. When he healed, you know, when he healed the man, um, he probably spat at him. When he healed, sorry, another blind man, he probably splat, spat at him, missed, and then he made a little paste on the ground. Do you remember the scripture says, Jesus spat on the ground, made some mud, put it on the man's eye, and told him to go down to the pool of Siloam and wash. So can you imagine all these people getting together and say, how did Jesus heal you? What about the lady, the, the, the woman who was uh, ill with the issue of blood for 12 years? She touched the hem of his garment and she was healed. What about the centurion's son? Sorry, the centurion's servant. The centurion who approached Jesus and said, my servant is ill. Can you come and heal him? Oh, can you heal him? Jesus says, oh, I'll come. And the centurion says, no, I don't want you to come. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus said, it is done. He never saw the servant. He never spoke to the servant. He didn't spit in his eye. And he was healed. So we have all these different ways that God heals. But God did the work. It wasn't the activity. He didn't have to touch everybody. He didn't have to speak to everybody. He didn't have to spit in their eyes. It was all different ways in which God showed his power, in which he worked in our lives. And when we try to copy, imitate what we've done in the past, what we've known in the past, what we've experienced in the past, God just writes across it, Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord has departed. You're not depending on me anymore. You are depending on the activity. You're ex you, you, you are depending on the memory you are depending on the experience. You are depending on somebody else's experience. And we can get carried away with this. And time and time again, you know, as Christians, we can make this mistake because it's what we know. Rather than looking to God for original, original anointing. 
and blessing. You cannot put God in a box. In Mark chapter 8, we hear of, of, uh, of um, another person that Jesus healed. This man actually went to Jesus and said, please touch me and heal me. He probably had been speaking to the man or the leper who had been healed by touch. So his understanding was, Jesus have to touch me to heal me. So he begged. The scripture says he begged Jesus to touch him because he thought that was the only way that he could be healed. But that was right for the leper. It wasn't right for him. Jesus did not touch him, but he healed him. Sometimes we, we lose the plot. We concentrate on the miracle rather than who has done it. Jesus will not fit our mold. You know, we cannot have a designer God who just, just is there and we're just going to tell him what to do. You know, we can ask for gifts. We can ask God for anything that we want. It says it in the scripture. Ask. If two of you uh, ask anything in my name, I will do it. But it mustn't be an activity. It mustn't be an object. It mustn't be a memory. It's only God. Exclusively God alone. See, the Israelites learned that, but they learned it the hard way. Because if you read the rest of Samuel, Samuel 1 and 2 Samuel, you'll see after 20 years, when they caught on, things turned round. When they realized it wasn't the objects, but it was God himself. And when they bowed down and confessed, and when they realized that God was the one doing it, everything turned around. And after 20 years, they began to be victorious again. I think to, to, for us to be de- victorious, you know, for us to, to, to um, experience the fullness of God, we have to be totally dependent on him for everything. Not what we know, what we've heard, what we've even experienced. Sometimes, sometimes the, the, same, the very same thing that God use, uses or has used years before to bless us may be the same thing that can, that can be used to curse us. When you, if you remember the story about the, um, uh, the, 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 the disciples when they were crossing the Sea of Galilee, when they were caught in that storm because of that wind, they were returning from the other side. From one side to the other, they were crossing back on the Sea of Galilee. And that wind had taken them into a storm that almost took their lives. But the previous day, the previous day, that same wind had actually taken them peacefully peacefully 
and had supported the boat and carried the boat to the other side the day before. So the things that uh, are used today to bless us may not be the same things that are used to bless us tomorrow. As long as we keep in mind that it is God who does it, and we rely on him totally for all that we need.